Hi, it's Laura. Thanks for listening to What on Earth. You might have noticed we've been trying some new things lately. We want you to keep listening, and we also want to get even more Earthlings on board. So whether you're new or a longtime fan, here's what we want to know. What do we do best? What should we rethink? What do you want to see us try next? Please fill out our survey. It's at cbc.ca slash whatonearthpod. We're listening. This is a CBC Podcast. There are some among us who are burdened by guilt when they board a plane, be it for a holiday or for work. They know how damaging emissions from flying are to the climate. They know there's no quick fix. But there is work underway on a number of fronts, dangling the prospect of guilt-free air travel. The problem with that may just be that people use it as an excuse to fly even more often. And author Christopher de Belegue suggests that's sacrilegious. I, I always compare it to medieval indulgences. People bought medieval indulgences not because they didn't want to sin anymore, but so they could sin more. After that, learning about climate change from a child's point of view, how to inform but not frighten the next generation. I think that it's very important to know because if we don't do anything about this, then it's going to be like a worse world than what we've seen over the years. And we need people to know now so that they can do something about it. Later on, putting the electricity grid on the front burner, the federal budget may finally get Nunavut plugged in, meaning it can dial down diesel generators. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Laura Lynch. Spring is here with all of its possibilities. Maybe you managed to jet off for a little vacation during spring break, or maybe you're planning a summer trip. But even as you're packing your bags or wheeling them through the airport, is climate change ever on your mind? We asked travelers at Vancouver International Airport whether they think about the impact of their flights on global warming. Yes, there's always guilt. Um, I tend not to go on vacations because of that. Uh, there's enough wonderful things to do in Vancouver and BC, but when I have to go for work, unfortunately, I have to fly. Of course, yeah, it's important because it affects, right, the travel, especially on air. Because <laughs> you know, like, somehow the planes, right, are not friendly, like, they still emit smoke and it does affect the weather. I do, I do, but I still travel. I love traveling. I'm a bad guy when it comes to climate effect. I go to Europe maybe 10 times a year, so I, I'm conscious of it and I, I'm concerned. I can't say that I experience a lot of guilt because a lot of the time I think about my impact versus uh, big corporations' impact. Yes, for sure. Uh, you can clearly see there's uh, climate changes in Brazil and even here in Vancouver. I also try to pay attention to flights. When you go to Google, you can see how much the CO uh, emission is going to get from the, the airplane. I think doing anything these days, I think I feel guilty about climate change because it's always been in the back of my mind. Yes, it's a, a little guilty to, to take the airplane. <laughs> Thank you and welcome to Vancouver. And those are travelers at Vancouver's airport grappling with the climate costs of flying. But there are solutions, 
And that's where my next guest comes in. Christopher de Belegue is the author of a new book, Flying Green, On the Frontiers of New Aviation. Hello. Hello. I'm wondering what goes through your mind as you hear those travelers. I think I feel an affinity to most of what is said there. People who are able to fly, and not everyone is able to fly. It's actually done by a very small minority of people. But those who are able to fly tend to fly because it is simply part of our lives. But at the same time, the sense of guilt and the sense that um, there is something radically wrong with what we're doing is also present. And it is important to know that while um, aviation is one factor among many, in the climate crisis, it is pound for pound, hour for hour, about the worst thing you can do for the climate. As I read the book, we have something in common. Both of us have been foreign correspondents. Both of us are now doing some more reporting on environment and climate. I used to fly a lot, especially from London. We would jump on a plane all the time to get out to news stories. That in that vein, I'm wondering what your, what your level of guilt is and whether that inspired you to write this book. I think that is one of the factors. I mean, one of the factors is that you want to kind of look down the generations and say, I wasn't oblivious to this um, massive problem. And I did try in my humble and modest way to kind of um, achieve or, or bring about some kind of raising of public awareness, um, get those technologies that are in development, um, get people talking about them, get people thinking about them. I don't think uh, I feel sort of especially guilty about um, my flying um, in the past, but I think now I try and avoid flying as much as possible. And your book is taking on the airline industry and how it is trying to tackle the problem and, and others who aren't directly involved in the industry. What were you expecting to find as you set out on this journey to the frontiers of cleaner air travel? Well, what I wasn't really expecting to find was such a plethora, such a variety of different pathways to decarbonizing aviation. Most sectors know the pathway to decarbonization, and it's it's a question of getting um, of scaling up that effort. It's a question of getting hold of the renewable energy that will make it possible, and then all the other capacities that are needed in order to uh, follow that pathway, which has been identified and which is in development. The airline industry is very late to the party. It's very late to the idea of decarbonization. And as a result, there are many different, quite quite radically different um, ways of decarbonizing aviation. And the question really is whether the aviation industry chooses one of them or whether it, it takes a kind of incremental approach using one and then another as availability and costs uh, dictate. And to that end, that's what you do. You go on and look at these various kinds of technologies. And in this journey, you meet entrepreneurs working on various solutions. One is Christoph Gebald. I'm wondering if you can tell listeners about his work and his motivation to do the work. He's a very young, dynamic man, uh, Christoph Gebalt, and he's one part of one solution. He owns a company called Climeworks, which is um, essentially best known for sequestrating uh, carbon. One of the other things that he does is that he sucks the carbon out of the air using renewable energy. And then he will provide that to another company that have electrolysis capacity, and they will bring um, hydrogen. And when you fuse the two, you're in a position to create a jet fuel that isn't that hasn't come from the ground. It's a circular process where, whereby the carbon uh, that has been drawn from the air is then combusted and returns to the air. And, and so you are carbon neutral. It's an incredibly exciting technology. It's something called 
uh, e-fuels or electrofuels, and it is starting to happen. But there are, as there are with all these technologies, um, severe drawbacks, and these need to be overcome. One is that you need a, an extraordinary amount of renewable energy to, to actually achieve this fuel. And the second is that you need electrolysis capacity, which is also in demand by other decarbonizing sectors. Right. Okay. And, and, and there are so many of the people that you spoke to who said that money is not, making money is not their main goal in all of this. Was that a common motivation? I think it is. Um, yes, they're, they're entrepreneurs and there is that entrepreneurial spirit and they're chasing money and they're chasing investment. But at the same time, that idea of climate virtue, if I can put it that way, right. is, yeah. is very important to them. You also introduced readers to Val Miftakov, who initially had a company converting gasoline cars to electric power, but then he formed a hydrogen aviation startup, Zero Avia. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, tell me what is the story behind the switch? We pronounce both of them correctly. Pew! <laughs> He's, uh, Val Miftakov is, is really an interesting guy. He was born in um, Russia. His, he grew up um, partly in Siberia. His father was in the oil industry. He was, always, he was always interested in aviation, and he came to the U.S. to study and got heavily into aviation. Essentially, he's um, using an, an existing airframe, so an, an existing aeroplane, and he's putting in a process whereby hydrogen isn't combusted, it isn't burnt, it's fed into a fuel cell which generates electricity. And it is very green. Uh, the only thing that is, that is harmful that it produces is contrails and that that's the the clouds that you get that form around the soot that a um, an airplane emits. Now we we've we've talked about hydrogen a lot on this program, and we know that there are all different kinds of colors of hydrogen. With green being obviously the the, the cleanest and and coming from renewables. From your research, how viable is hydrogen as a fuel for airplanes? It's a very good question, and I know there's been a lot of skepticism about whether or not hydrogen can be produced using renewable energy, and whether it can be green in the way that you've just described. Hydrogen is, of course, incredibly attractive. It's got a lot of energy. There's no carbon attached. But the problem for aeroplanes is that it's voluminous. And you've got to think of a way of storing that hydrogen in such a way that doesn't take all the space that you would otherwise be putting passengers and cargo in. So if you want to burn hydrogen up in the sky, what you've got to do is redesign the plane. And redesigning plane is something that airplane designers uh, and the big Boeing and Airbus and uh, Bombardier and all of those companies hate doing because it's incredibly expensive. It's very risky. And the regulator is always checking every single thing that you do. All right. Now, the, the chapter Flying Electric, I loved this chapter. <laughs> and I actually went and watched a video because I, I couldn't quite get from the description what they were doing, but it's fascinating when you see it. You tell the story of the first test flight of a new kind of aircraft called electric vertical takeoff. So tell us what happened. Laura, you've given, you've said exactly the wrong thing. You need to be able, to, you need to tell the author that you could visit exactly <laughs> from my description. It's awful that you had to go oh, and look it up on, the, but on it's, YouTube. But it's fascinating <laughs> when you look at it. It is absolutely fascinating. It is, it is remarkable. And you're going to have to get used to it because they are flying around. And the, the company that I visited, which is called Archer, uh, they've announced a plan with Chicago O'Hare Airport so that um, people landing at Chicago O'Hare Airport will be able to fly downtown using one of these flying taxis in the future. What we don't want to be doing is creating more demand for, um, for flying 
um, because what we're trying to do is replace something that is carbon uh, that is that is damaging for the environment with something that isn't. And the question of these EV tolls is that you end up wondering whether they may have a very good business case, but what their environmental case is, because they're not actually um, replacing um, the aeroplanes that we fly in and that spew out um, emissions. What they're doing is they are a competitor for Uber and a car. And the only way that electric is going to really help on the carbon piece is if the battery performance um, improves considerably. What's interesting is, it is, is that a lot of your listeners will have taken off um, from LAX in Los Angeles at some stage in their flying lives. And they will have been part of that transition to, um, to green aviation because every flight that takes off from LAX has a small quantity of sustainable aviation fuel in it. And this is the other technology that we haven't um, really touched on. And the more these technologies become known to the public and the, the more the, the, the public becomes familiar with these technologies, then the greater the acceptance, the greater the willingness of investors to come in and push these technologies so that they really make a difference. So they're not just um, very kind of trophy, um, trophy technologies that have no broader effect on the climate crisis. All of these technologies need to be scaled incredibly quickly. And so they need massive amounts of investment and they also need buy-in from the flying public and pressure from the flying public on the airlines to raise their game. Well, given all of that, then what technology or technologies gave you the most hope? I think they all need to win. I don't think one of them can get us out of this problem on its own. We need sustainable aviation fuels because the aeroplanes that people buy, that airlines buy, have a 40-year shelf life. And the airlines are not going to throw away a plane after 20 years. We need something else to replace the jet A kerosene that goes into the tank. So that's the first thing. And that's the most immediately accessible of the technologies. Hydrogen, as we've discussed, has its problems, uh, but it's also uh, the most environmentally friendly of the technologies. And so for that reason, it needs to be pushed and it needs um, investment. Electric, that's the kind of holy grail. Um, but we're not going to get that. We're not going to get there for a long time because of the battery performance just simply isn't. We're not there yet. So I think all of these things need to play a part. The other thing which the airlines um, are speaking about is that we need to carbon capture and sequestrate. And so companies like Climeworks, which are burying carbon in the basalt of Iceland, also need to be part of the picture. The problem is is that some people will think that's a license to fly. Uh, in the same way, I, I always compare it to medieval indulgences. People bought medieval indulgences not because they didn't want to sin anymore, but so they could sin more. And um, sometimes you think of the offsetting business, which exists now around aviation, and, and you see that airlines and consumers are interested in offsets uh, because they think that it will allow them to carry on flying. Actually, until these, until these technologies are fully scaled, we all need to be flying less. You, you've nodded to the reluctance, the resistance even, of the aviation industry. And your last sentence, you say, aviation needs a session with the thumbscrews. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell me a little more <laughs> what you mean by that. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the aviation industry, I have a lot of admiration for its, its ruthless commercial success. And it has achieved that success by being resistant to change, by having a very close relationship with government, 
by avoiding taxation. And they've also managed to mount a very successful anti-environmental rearguard action as pressure has mounted. That, having said that, I think that the aviation industry is now changing, and I think they're now recognizing the absolute necessity of doing this. We can't demonize the aviation industry. Uh, they will be the solution just as they are part of the problem. And if that means that flying becomes more expensive for you and me, then I think we, we as, as concerned citizens of the world, need to accept that. How much did, did research and writing this book change you and your perspective? Uh, you've talked about this a little bit already in your own practices around flying. I, I tended to oscillate between despair and hope. You know, I, I regard myself as a, as a, as a friendly critic of, of the aviation industry. I'm not out to trash the industry. I'm not out to, to say that no one should fly. I'm very committed to this, to the ideal of decarbonizing aviation. I suppose in that way, I've, I've, my, my views have kind of solidified and that I'm certainly better informed than I used to be. Christopher de Belleg, thank you so much for speaking with me from London. You did not get on a plane for this interview. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Laura. You are listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Now, we have had just such an amazing response to our call for nominations for community climate champions. Coming up, we'll hear about a climate hero worthy of recognition, and we'll tell you how you can submit your suggestions. Climate change worries people of all ages these days. A lot of young people in particular struggle with anxiety when they think about what the future will hold. That's why John Whidden is working on a program aimed at giving young people hope and a sense of how they can contribute to climate solutions. John is an educator with the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, and we're going to hear from him in just a few minutes. But first, let's check in with a couple of his students. Cade Steger and Abby Ponzak are both grade five students at Dr. Ken Sauer School in Medicine Hat, Alberta. Hello to you both. Hi. 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 Abby, tell me about Dr. Whitten. You, you call him Dr. W, as I understand. I mean, Mr. W, as I understand yes, it. Mr. W. Mr. W. He's visited your classroom a few times lately, and, I, and I'm here. He wears some pretty colorful ties. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, some people call him, like, the tie guy because pretty much every day he wears, like, a different tie with a different backstory. He brought a lobster tie one time. He wore a Scooby-Doo tie and a Christmas tie, too, as well. But, but Abby and Kate, aside from the ties... Uh, Mr. W, Mr. Whitten also taught you about climate change. What was the most interesting thing that you think you learned? Abby, why don't we start with you? One of the most interesting things, I think, would be that some of kids, even like less than our age or sometimes a little bit older, are right now doing something about climate change. So they're involved in getting active even when they're very young. Wow. Okay. And and Kate, how much did you know about climate change before Mr. W's classes? I know as much as like the average person just like had like the basic knowledge of it. And so what new things did you learn? I learned that like how many people actually are trying to stop it. And it's quite inspiring on how many people are doing it and how many of them are taking a stand against it. Was that surprising to you? Oh, yes, very. I knew like... There would be a lot of people, but not like that many people. And how did that make you feel when you learned that? Very, 
very inspired. Mr. W actually asked every student in the class to put these sticky notes on sort of a spectrum of the wall. Um, yes. And it showed how worried they were feel about climate change. So I guess one end of it was maybe not that worried to the other end being very worried. Kate, where did you put your sticky on the first day? I was more on the worried side. Not like super duper worried, but like still worried. And why was that? I would like to have a family and then like what's going to be, what's their daily lives going to be? What's like their children's daily lives going to be like generations to come? I don't want them to have a terrible life just because like, I was selfish enough to go get, like, a plastic bottle. Good thought. I'm wondering, though, after after uh, Mr. W's lessons, did you move that sticky? Well, yes, I did. But it's like I, ca- I still hovered around the same area. But at the very end, I was more so in the middle. And, Abby, where did you put your sticky? I was, like, right in the middle. Okay. And uh, where did it end up for you? A little bit closer to, like, the not worried side. But... Like, I was still close to the middle. I wasn't really moving that much, but it helped a little. Now, Kate, you came up with ideas for projects about climate change. Tell me what your idea was about. So what I did is um, I drew awareness to um, how coal mining affected climate change. And then I... And then I kind of said, like, brought awareness to how, like, some places are already, like, doing something against it. And why did you want to focus on coal? Well, because um, I knew it would be easy to get some information because my grandfather, he worked in a coal mine. Um, I kind of asked him, like, how much, like, input of coal did they get a year? Like, how fast did they do it? And, like, what was it used for? And I re- did some research online. And, and what, what did he think of the work that you were doing? What did he tell you? Two thumbs up. <laughs> Good for you, Kate. <laughs> Abby, what was your project about? My project was I, like, went around the school interviewing some of the people who worked there, like the principal, the custodian, some different teachers, and we asked them different questions about climate change, like, what do you think is causing climate change, and what do you think the world will become if we don't do anything about climate change, and, like, what are you doing about it? And, and we made a video in the end. Oh, okay. And, and and how did you feel after talking to so many people in your school about that and about the action that they're taking on climate change? I felt pretty good because it, it feels a little bit better to know that a whole bunch of people are helping so you can join in. What kinds of actions did they tell you they were taking? Some of the things would just be like the basics, recycling unplugging things when they're not using it and some things that some people said especially like the principal they said about like the solar panels on the roof that we have at our school so that's a lot that's a lot that's going on in your school that must have made you feel pretty good yeah (laughs) i'm wondering how important you two think it is for kids your age to learn about climate change kate it's quite important definitely yeah like you should just like give them that knowledge so they know what they can do to like help out against it not stop it but just at least help with it and abby what do you think how important do you think it is for kids your age to learn about climate change i think that it's very important to know because if we don't do anything about this if we go on like the way it was for the past like few years then it's going to be like some of the people said 
like a worse world than what we've seen over the years. And we need people to know now so that they can do something about it. But some people just don't have the right attitude for that. So we want to try and change that attitude to try and get them to do something about it. Well, do you think that, that Mr. W's lessons will help you talk more about climate change with your family and your friends, Abby? Yes, it helped us know a lot about like climate change and what kind of things are causing it so we know what to do if we're ever going to start doing stuff about it. And have you been talking to your family? Yeah, I have. I mainly talked about like some of the things that are causing climate change, some of the things we can do about climate change. And because I was doing the interviews, I told them about different people's perspectives. And Kate, we already know about your conversations. You were telling us some of that before. But I'm, I'm just wondering um, what you what you think of, of the way Mr. W taught you. It definitely helped, like 100%. And I found it like, um, I'm not sure what to say. It kind of like gave me like a sense of hope. Abby, does hope, is that the right word to describe the way he taught for you? Yes, it does give people hope and it does, it encourages us to, to do something about this. Well, Kate Steger and Abby Ponzak, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, bye. Bye. Well done, well done you guys. Good job. <laughs> Okay, you just heard his voice. He's been listening into my chat with his students. So let's bring in the man behind the lessons Cade and Abby have been talking about. John Whidden is an educator with Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, also known as CPAWS. Hello. Hi, Laura. What was that like to hear your students talking about you? Oh, it was uh, interesting. Interesting <laughs> to hear. I've talked to them a little bit about uh what they thought about the program afterwards, but uh, not in that much detail. Now, now, we first heard about your classes because you emailed us, and I wondered what, what made you decide to get in touch. I I sent that original email just as a thank you, Laura, because I in the research of this pilot program, I, I was going through all kinds of information and uh, found that there was a definite sense in children these days that there's uh, an anxiety around climate. So I was looking for where people could find hope and your program seemed full of it. It was really inspiring. So I thought, wow, that that's a good place to start for sure. And you were doing your research for an education program and, and we heard from the students about what you do in your lessons. But how do you broach the subject when you first walk into the classroom and get those kids to really buy in on what, what is a challenging topic? The first thing I always do as a teacher is try to find out where the kids are at. So the first question is, what is climate change to you? And that's why we do that exercise with the stickies. They jot down on the sticky what emotions or uh, thoughts come up when they hear the words climate change. And then they put the sticky on a continuum. On one side, it's not worried at all. And the other side is losing sleep over it. And then we get to get a sense of of where everybody is. And then from there, we go on to just look at facts. We talk about facts and opinions, and that's always important for students to learn about. And we keep checking back. I keep checking back with the, the students to say, okay, was that a fact or an opinion? So we're just getting into what science says about climate change. Well, what kinds of words typically show up on the stickies? Oh, boy. Um, with this group, they must have talked about polar ice and polar bears because there were a number of them that uh, that mentioned 
animals, habitat loss, polar bears being in trouble, and not as much polar ice as there used to be. It was striking to hear Cade mention having a family. Yeah, that was that really struck me when he when he talked about that. You know, when I grow up and I have a family, what's life going to be like for them? I thought that was very perceptive for a, a lad of his tender age. And it really makes you, makes you come to terms with the fact that, that they understand they are facing something that we adults may never have to struggle with because of the way things are going to develop over the years. I, I'm wondering, exactly. was that... Yeah, and, and he, you know, that just brought home that point for me. The studies I was reading, a big one out of the United Kingdom a few years ago that you'll be acquainted with, you know, these, these students were, young people were really, they felt like it was a dire, dire situation. There wasn't much to hope for. And I thought, wow, I've never felt that way about much in my life, especially not the environment. You know, I know we've got an uphill battle, but I don't feel completely hopeless like some of these students did. And I I heard a little bit of that coming through when Cade brought up this thinking about what's my future family's life going to be like. So obviously kids are thinking about this. Right. Is that one of the reasons that, that you wanted to design climate change lessons specifically for elementary school students? Yeah, that's exactly what inspired me. I, I was hearing too much of this doom and gloom, in my opinion. I, I found that students had blinders on, in a way, toward climate. And there was an attitude out there with the students I taught. I was a public school teacher for many years. And I kept hearing this sense of, I didn't create this, so you can't expect me to deal with it. And I thought, well, that's something we need to hit head on, I think, because you are the ones who are going to have to deal with it. So what is the key ingredient, do you think, to teaching about climate change to kids who are that age? Well, I think they appreciate hearing the facts. So often we get a slant, uh, we get some misinformation. So I just present them with the facts and say, here are the sources for those facts. Go ahead and look them up. Talk to your family about them. Uh, you know, let's let's find out where we're at. And then we move on to, okay, what can we do about that? We hear quite often in Alberta, well, China and India aren't doing anything, so why should we do anything? And so I bring that down to a local level and say, okay, if my neighbor wasn't shoveling their walk and it's all of icy, do I say, well, my neighbor's not doing it, so I'm not going to do it. And the kids always say, no, of course not. Well, right. And uh, And then we move into little actions and how inspiring those little actions can be. And uh, I was just thinking of a quote, Margaret Mead said, uh, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So I try to help the students get that sense of, okay, if I take a little step in the right direction, then we're going to start all moving in a better way. And our little actions will eventually, as we grow older and become leaders, become big actions and that can actually make a difference. So I think that's really important for them to get hope through seeing that. And then as they do presentations at the end of the program, they see each other doing these little things. And I found they were quite hopeful and inspired. I certainly was. I was really impressed. You know, you heard about Cade and Abby's presentations. There were so many other wonderful ones. I'd like to list them all for you, but a couple (laughs) 
Uh, there was uh, one student who talked about how far food traveled to get to their table. Another student is organizing a walk to school day. I find that really helpful. And uh, the morning of the last presentation, it's funny, I was listening to the news and I heard a couple of kind of dire stories, one about melting polar ice and another one about climate. And, you know, it didn't get to me because I knew I was going to a school where I was going to see young people talk about what actions they're taking. So it's, it's really inspiring. Sounds to me like it's not just helpful for the students, it's helpful for you. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I, but again, I, like I said, I've, I've never felt that I was depressed about the environment, that I was hopeless about the environment like some of these students. So I feel like we need to really help them to deal with these things. Now, one of the, the bigger employers where you've been teaching in medicine hat is the oil and gas industry. I'm wondering what impact that has on your work in the classroom. That was a big question. After each iteration of this pilot program, I've gone back to the teachers a week or two later and said, have you heard anything negative? You know, has there been any problem that you've had to deal with? And there has not been, you know, I, I look out on my front lawn now and there's no protest going on, but uh, <laughs> I've had zero negative response from students, parents, or the broader community, only positive. So go Alberta. You know, we often get the idea, there's a sense that all Albertans are opposed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but that just hasn't been my experience. Now, you've tested out the program three times over the past year. What, what are you hoping to do with it next? That is a big question, Laura. I'd like it to be scalable so that it could become a regular CPAWS program that educators could go out and deliver. But at this point, it's pretty labor-intensive. I, I spent probably, on average, with each of the three groups, eight to ten hours in the classroom, which is kind of untenable in terms of a scalable program. But I'm going to see if I can trim that down somehow and still get the important stuff across and make it more widely available. But for now, I'm going to keep doing it in Medicine Hat and see how that goes. But wouldn't one way to scale it be to actually have the teachers teaching it? Yes, you're absolutely right. I think what we need to do is get it into the curriculum. And uh, I'm, I'm not really seeing it right now in the Alberta curriculum. I'm hopeful for the future, but uh, that it definitely is correct. We need to get in the classrooms with all the teachers talking about it. Well, it sounds like it's really having an impact on the kids apart from your ties. So, right. <laughs> so it's a good thing you're going to keep going with it. John Wooden, thank you. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. Now, you heard John talk about how he doesn't see climate change in the Alberta elementary school curriculum. And we do know there are teachers across Canada talking about climate change in their classrooms, whether it's in the formal curriculum or not. But it turns out that Alberta is also working on bringing in a new science curriculum. It's an update to the one that's been used since the 1990s. When that becomes mandatory, kids in grade 5 and 6 We'll be learning more about climate change in all Alberta classrooms. And if you want to know more about climate curricula, search for our past episode, CBC What on Earth? Climate in the Classroom. Canadians care about what's happening in the world. And in just 10 minutes, World Report can help you stay on top of it all. Join me, Marcia Young. And me, John Northcott, to get caught up on what was breaking when you went to bed and the stories that still matter in the morning. Our CBC News reporters will tell you about the people trying to make change. The political movements catching fire. And the cultural moments going viral. Find World Report wherever you get your podcasts. Start your day with us.
And yes, that story came to us because a listener wrote in, and we need your help again. We want to hear about your climate heroes, and I'm not talking about world-famous activists. I'm talking about the people in your community who go the extra mile or kilometer to protect the planet. The response so far has just been amazing, and Danielle Piper is here to tell us more. Hi, Danielle. Hey, Laura. Now, I've been watching the emails come in, and, and it's just amazing to see the response the numbers, the kinds of responses, different kinds of people, mothers, fathers, daughters, school teachers, voters even. I know. It's inspiring to hear about all these people working on so many projects to make their worlds better. We've heard about everything from tours of solar homes to kids selling art to help protect old growth. And I love hearing about how these climate heroes have inspired others. And we received so many nominations that we've decided to devote a whole show to your climate heroes. It's our way of celebrating Earth Day, and uh, we can't wait to bring you that program in about two weeks' time. Uh, Danielle, though, you have a sneak preview. You bet I do. I can't resist sharing one email now with listeners. This comes from Bryony Halpin. I would like to nominate my 73-year-old mom, Paula Halpin, as a local climate hero. Since retiring about 10 years ago from hospital communications, my mom has educated herself with books, films, lectures, and conversations, written op-eds, organized and hosted a speaker series on the issue, attended protests, and written members of parliament. Before her retirement, she knew very little about these issues. Over the course of the years of climate work, she has always maintained that it is a labor of love for her four grandchildren. And her grandchildren have been so incredibly inspired by her efforts every step of the way. And Laura, Bryony shared a photo of her mom at a protest with a big homemade sign that says, Vote Climate. Okay, that sounds like a really valid nomination. Do listeners still have time to send in nominations? Absolutely. We're still looking for your community climate champions. So send us an email, earth at cbc.ca, and tell us about your climate hero. It really helps if you can be really specific about what this person does for the planet and why they inspire you. And yes, a photo helps. Again, the email address, earth at cbc.ca. And if you send it this week, it will be considered for our special episode devoted to your community climate champions. That's coming up in two weeks' time, just ahead of Earth Day. Thank you to all of the listeners who have written in already. We are reading everyone. And thank you, Danielle. Thanks, Laura. Next time you flip a switch, make your morning coffee or open the fridge, maybe think about it. Because most of the time, most people take it for granted. Electricity, it's always there. Well, almost always when there's a blackout, that's when people notice. But now there are warnings that the grid delivering the current to our homes and businesses isn't ready for the future. And Ottawa is trying to turn that around with the new federal budget. To break it down, we're enlisting some help from someone who never takes electricity for granted. Hi, I'm Benu Jakumar. I'm the director of the electricity program at the Pemina Institute, based here in Calgary, Alberta. Now, Benu knows that by 2050, the demand for electricity in Canada is forecast to double. 
The federal government has outlined a number of measures to create a green, clean, reliable grid that's emissions-free. But back to Binu, let's start with how Canada's transmission grid is doing now. We're actually quite green. Uh, About 83% of our electricity is non-emitting right now, Laura. And that's because we have huge hydro resources in provinces like Ontario, Quebec and BC. Uh, But having said that, I would say we're still falling behind our peers in terms of the new capacity that we're building for clean energy. You know, just for example, in the seven years between 2015 and 2021, uh, wind and solar capacity in the U.S. grew by 137%. And in Canada, it only grew by 31%. So there's a bit of catching up we need to do in terms of new clean energy investments still. So give me your review then. How does this budget stack up in terms of accomplishing the goals that that the government wants so that Canadians have the power they need when they need it and know that that power is green? Overall, I would say that this budget is a huge positive step for Canada. It sends a clear signal that Canada is committed to a cleaner future and a cleaner grid, uh, while also creating sustainable jobs for Canadians. Specifically on the electricity sector, this is actually one of the most significant budgets we have ever seen in Canada's history. Here, the government has committed to almost $50 billion of explicit investment by 2035. There's a 15% tax credit that expands to include publicly owned entities uh, to invest in clean energy technologies like wind, solar, battery storage, abated natural gas, transmission. And I want to point out this is important to expand to publicly owned entities, uh, which is a new thing in this budget, because it allows for a lot of the crown corporations that we have in many provinces like Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Atlantic Canada, they can now uh, benefit from this tax credit as well. And it's not just the private sector. In addition, we should be paying close attention to what the Canada Infrastructure Bank does. They've been given $20 billion to invest in projects with the same technologies that that I outlined. And the third thing I would highlight is there's about $3 billion devoted to making smart grids and electrification happen. So it's a modest start, but an important start. Now, just on that 15% tax credit, there's been some criticism it may not be enough to attract the investment that's needed from the market. What do you think? You know, there's always a little bit of uncertainty with the market. I think what's needed uh, to complement such a measure like this is um, some regulations. So what you see in the budget here are several great carrots uh, to incentivize industry to start taking measures in this direction. We also need our regulations that can send a really clear signal to industry on what these should be doing. She also sees something else consumers might like. You know, one other thing that may not be obvious in the budget is the impact of these clean electricity investments on affordability. Government has articulated very specific affordability measures in one chapter of the budget document. And their investments in the energy infrastructure, a few chapters down, can actually help reduce the cost of energy for all Canadians. And a good example of this is the investment in transmission infrastructure. You know, by supporting the building of interconnections between provinces, uh, as well as transmission within any given province, the federal government can actually help lower the cost of energy for consumers. So Binu Jayakumar says government investment in Canada's electricity grid could save you money. 
It could also be a game changer for parts of this country that aren't connected to a grid carrying clean, reliable electricity, places like Nunavut. Ottawa says this new budget will help transition communities away from diesel by supporting projects like the Kivalik Hydrofiber Link Project. Once complete, it would be Nunavut's first electrical transmission connection to southern Canada. Anne-Raphaël Audouin is the CEO of the Inuit-owned company leading that project. When we talk about the project uh, with our Inuit leadership, we always say that this is kind of the last frontier. We've developed a lot of resources. We've extracted a lot of resources. We have connected our country pretty much from coast to coast, east-west. And obviously, a lot of interties exist even more so with our neighbor to the south, with the U.S., But then our third coast, which is the Arctic Ocean, and what connects us to Nunavut has been has been neglected. 20% of our country is not grid connected. And it is the last jurisdiction in Canada that actually has to, for all intents and purposes, function like an island, completely cut off from what we take for granted in the South. So the vision really is to break that cycle of isolation that has kept Nunavut behind for way too long, create an opportunity for Nunavut to also trade electricity in the long term, because the transmission line would be enabling two-way electricity trades. So if, if Inuit want to develop their own Arctic renewable resources in the future, then now they're in business. David Kakutinak is from Rankin Inlet on Nunavut's east coast. He's the president of the company leading Kivalik. I come from a long line of Inuit that lived in Canada's Arctic for millennia. And our people, up until my dad's generation, really, had led a nomadic life and and lived off the land and, and harvested and sustained life that way. The federal government forced the Inuit to relocate cutting them off from their traditional nomadic existence on the land and into a life dependent on diesel. Everything that's evolved and exists in terms of our infrastructure is now based on diesel. We've gone from one extreme to another in the span of 100 years. And those diesel generators are loud, dirty, and can lead to spills that put the land and people at risk. On top of that, the fuel is expensive. I was involved in a college at one point, and they had to cut the kitchen program out because the electricity bill was almost $80,000 a month. So that takes away programming dollars where you can teach with that money versus burning it on diesel. David says replacing diesel with transmission lines supplying electricity is a critical step forward. And then your growth as a community and your infrastructure and then your economy it's not obstructed. It's not withheld. It's, it's, it, it can really flourish. Although the Kivalik Hydrofiber Link project was mentioned specifically in the federal budget, there's no mention of new funds for it. Where we had hoped to be was, was really with a more definitive line object in the budget uh, 2023 that stated, you know, Kivalik Hydrofiber Link project and here's an amount. And, and we weren't looking for like a full amount of the project. It was a portion of a portion of that. I think that's the heaviness of the disappointment here is it would have taken such a small amount of their token effort that would have really pushed us significantly forward. It's not where we want it to be. That's the task in front of us now. We have to pivot by responding to the budget in a way that we can still 
carry the torch and, and, you know, carry and champion this project forward. The federal government says the budget, quote, would be able to support projects like the Kivalik Hydrofiber Link. And there are potentially more sources of government funding it can try to secure. But for now, nothing's certain. So I want to bring Vinu Jayakumar back into the conversation, our electricity aficionado with the Pembina Institute. Vinu, how key are projects like that one in Nunavut for regions that rely on diesel? Yeah, I want to start by saying, Laura, that it's really heartening to hear about projects like this. Uh, the diesel dependency right now in remote Indigenous communities, and that has uh, been a pervasive issue with a wide range of negative economic, social, and environmental consequences. So the situation right now is every year, hundreds of millions of liters of diesel is flown, shipped by ocean, or driven on roads and seasonal ice roads. And, you know, the cost of this transportation is very high and also unreliable. On the social side, also, we're seeing impacts on the respiratory health of many of these communities because of diesel pollution. So um, those are some very fundamental issues that need to be addressed. And seeing infrastructure projects like this transmission project is a really good sign. Uh, We need to see um, these projects also led by Indigenous leadership. So that's also another good element of this project in order for it to work in in these regions and also for uh, reasons of the truth and reconciliation goals that we have for Canada. I I think in addition to what you heard just now about this project, uh, I want to pull out a couple of themes here. One is how important it is to build transmission in the north. There is a very key uh, infrastructure gap in between, between the Uh, non-Indigenous communities in Canada and Indigenous communities. Um, And so connecting them to the grid actually opens up a lot of opportunities that right now they don't have access to. The other thing I want to add is also energy projects, whether they are transmission projects or, you know, solar or wind projects up north, they face a lot of systemic challenges that still need to be addressed. But I would say that we need to go beyond uh, incentives like tax incentives. Uh, we need to invest in capacity building, in partnerships, and programs that are focused in these kind of indigenous-led projects. Okay, let's talk about the provinces and the territories as governments. What role do they play in Ottawa's goal to have a net zero electricity grid by 2035? Yeah, you know, in many ways, this federal budget is a strong call to action. You know, the federal government has sort of set the table here and provinces now need to come to the table and take action. Electricity in Canada is a provincial jurisdiction. And um, there's a few things here I can tie back to the uh, budget itself too. So the investment tax credit, for example, that we're talking about actually comes with a proviso that um, entities that are accessing this also commit to a net zero grid by 2035. So this will require provinces to have some, or we hope it will require provinces to have some sort of plan to get to a net zero grid by 2035. And that's really critical. Right now, no province has a plan in place to get there. And every province has its own unique challenges as well as opportunities. So you really need a made-in-province plan to make that happen. Um, And there's a few key things provinces need to do. You know, one, we were just talking about transmission. It's that interconnection. You know, while it's true, yes, Canada is probably connected better east to west than north to south, 
Um, that east to west connection is still very tenuous and nowhere near what it needs to be. What we really need is almost a nation building type of effort uh, to connect the provinces so that we can take advantage of clean energy in different provinces and move it around as needed uh, to actually keep the costs low. Is there anything in the budget to remedy that? Yes. So the budget does promise funding for provincial interconnections as well as uh, within province transmission uh, infrastructure. Um, so there is funding available, but the challenge here is actually for the provinces to work together and come to an agreement on mutually beneficial um, arrangements so that they can actually build this infrastructure between each other. I just want to ask you, though, the budget documents state that Canada must become a clean electricity superpower by 2050. And from what you've seen here in the document, will the country be able to claim that title by then, or is there more that would, needs to be done? I think there is enough in here to set us on this path. Uh, for the last several years, industry, um, clean energy advocates, uh, civil society, consumers have been asking a lot for the federal government to step in and take some significant measures on the in the electricity sector. And I would say this budget actually has all those major buckets. But the biggest thing I would say is um, we still need to see other entities beyond the federal government now to step up to the plate. We need the provinces there. We need uh, industry there. We need utilities there. Um, we need corporations there. You know, some corporations are already starting to buy clean energy in Alberta. Um, so we, we need to start seeing those sorts of action to make this happen. Binu Jayakumar, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Laura. Thank you for having me. And we've got some time now for a few other climate stories in the news this week. Proposed federal legislation aimed at curbing environmental racism just cleared the House of Commons and is on its way to the Senate for further scrutiny. If it becomes law, it will require the government to examine the links between racialization, socioeconomic status, and environmental risk. And if you want to know more about this, just search Green is Not White to hear our episode, which first aired in February of 2021. Now, last week, we featured a story on the small southern Pacific nation of Vanuatu, one of the most climate-vulnerable countries in the world. Just days later, the country persuaded the United Nations to seek a ruling from the International Court of Justice. It will look into what nations are obligated to do to address the climate crisis. It will also outline the consequences for failing to act. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.